Good morning. I want to say uh, how good it is to see you all here today, and a special thank you to Phil and Aaron and Matt. Always good to have you with us making music. Thank you for coming back. I want to give a special thanks to Rex, who read our text this morning, who joked with me before the service that I asked him to read a text about the evil going bald. I want to point out in front of everybody that what this text actually insinuates is that baldness is a sign of God's justice. (laughs) I want to commend and bless all of you here today who are with me on the road to justice. (laughs) Aside from the parts that make us chuckle, this is a hard text, the one that we're reading today. When uh, in our cycle of weekly readings one of these hard texts comes up, I usually choose not to pick a nicer one but to read it intentionally, and that's what we'll do this morning. So let's ask God's blessing upon us. Let us pray. O Lord, in your mercy and grace, may you bring us good news. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be acceptable in your sight. For you, are, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Many of you have doubtless heard Karl Marx's famous criticism of religion as the opiate of the people. You may likewise have heard quotations from famous famous atheists or anti-religionists of our own time. Christopher Hitchens, the Oxford professor, the author of God is Not Great, asks religious people to terrify children with the image of hell, to consider women an inferior creation. Is that good for the world? And David Kinnaman, a a Christian person who has done expansive research on today's young adults, says that Christianity has an image problem. Outsiders see us as hypocritical, too focused on growth, anti-gay, out of touch with the world, too political, and too judgmental. That's why people are not coming to church in the numbers they used to. I will admit that these attitudes and countless others like them are not unfair. Often these attitudes are a product of looking at the evidence, the way religious people have behaved badly throughout history and still do today. Negative attitudes toward religion come from another source too. Negative attitudes toward religion come from reading religious texts themselves, and concluding from those texts that God is vengeful and cruel. This morning I am going to suggest that if we are going to be religious people of integrity, we must do two things. First, we must be honest about our history and our current reality, owning that religion has done much harm. And we must commit ourselves daily 
to the love, justice, and service to which our God really stands. Second, we have to read the unpleasant texts in our scriptures. We have to explore their original context and honestly ask if they portray God as simply vengeful and cruel or if there is something else they are trying to teach us. This morning's text is a hard one. God's wrath is on full display here. The end has come upon my people Israel, says God. I will make the sun go down at noon. I will turn your feasts into mourning. I will send a famine, not of bread, but of hearing the word of the Lord. Can these words come from a God of love? Like so many other places in the Bible, context is important here. So let's start with the history behind what we're reading and see if it contributes anything to our understanding. The book of Amos was written in the 8th century BCE, in the last days of what was known as the Northern Kingdom of Israel. In the days of the Old Testament, some of you will remember that Kings Saul and David and Solomon were the first great kings of Israel. After the three of them came a series of kings who weakened and eventually divided the kingdom into one kingdom in the north and the other in the south. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrian Empire in the 8th century, and the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonian Empire in the 6th century, 200 years later. That is when Jerusalem and Solomon's temple were destroyed, and the Jewish people went into their time of exile. The book of Amos takes place around the earlier collapse of the northern kingdom. So you can think about the reading we heard today as being about the beginning of the end. Amos is a prophet, which is to say he is a cultural critic. He believes in the God of Israel and the way of life God set out for the people of Israel, and he speaks out when he thinks the people are not living according to God's will. Amos is writing during the, the reign of King Jeroboam II. The oddity about Amos' writing at this time is that the reign of Jeroboam II is written about as a time of prosperity in Israel. The symbol that begins today's reading, the metaphor that governs it, is about an overflowing basket of summer fruit. Many people claimed life was good, and the kingdom was strong. But while a basket of summer fruit can ripen, it can also rot. And Amos says the people have not been faithful with the produce of the land. Listen to this description by historian Simon Parker. The breakdown in Israel's traditional values was particularly striking among the wealthiest in society, who cultivated and enjoyed considerable luxury. 
While some were losing their land and homes and family, others had both winter and summer houses, lived in homes of ashlar masonry, or enjoyed furnishings decorated with fine ivory work. In chapter 6 of the book of Amos, there is a graphic description of sybaritic banquets enjoyed by the elite of society. In the midst of this prosperity and opulence, it is the beginning of the end. And it is the beginning of the end because only the rich are benefiting from the prosperity. They are ignorant of the needs of everybody else. In fact, they cheat regular people by manipulating the economic policies. In chapter 8, where we read in verse 5, it says we will make the ephah small and the shekel great and practice deceit with false balances. They go on to complain about the Sabbath, that it takes one day a week away from the time when they can take advantage of other people with economics. This deceptive behavior is in violation of God's intentions. And Parker goes on to say, Amos castigates those who enjoy a life of carefree luxury and remain at the same time oblivious to the violence and oppression on which it is based. The core of Amos' message then is that because of these misdeeds, God will destroy this society. So Amos, speaking for God, issues a series of warnings to the people over a long period of time trying to get their attention. The warnings start long before the passage that we read. This is chapter 8. And among those earlier warnings are Amos's inspirational words, often quoted in our own culture by Dr. King. Let, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's Amos. That's the advice, the warning, the wake-up call Amos gives. But the people don't listen. They don't listen to countless warnings. And so eventually God has had enough. And in chapter 8, toward the end of the book, we finally get to the tough love of the lesson we read this morning. The end has come upon my people Israel. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all of your songs into lamentation Having been warned on countless occasions, the people of the northern kingdom are finally going to reap what they sow. Let me take a moment and return to where I started today. Those criticisms we hear about religion and the Bible. I have observed, perhaps you have as well, that when people argue about the merits of religion, the argument often sounds like this. The critic of religion cites a passage like the one we are reading, asking, how can you believe in such a nasty, vengeful God? These are exactly the texts that have supported religious people who behave so badly. 
And there's truth to that. So the response from the defender of religion is often to change the subject. To redirect the critic to nicer passages in the Bible and tell the stories about all of the good things that religious people have done, building hospitals and schools and working at soup kitchens. This argument usually ends in an impasse that doesn't really satisfy anyone. I'd like to suggest a different argument that I think is at least more honest and may even be more productive. We have to acknowledge that these hard texts exist and we have to deal with them. So rather than redirecting people to a nicer story, let's dig into this one for a moment. Let's keep the context in mind and talk about what is actually happening here. In the context of the northern kingdom of Israel, God is looking out for the people who have nothing. God is looking out for the people who have nothing, who don't even have a voice, who are missing out on the prosperity, even though they contribute to it every day with their own blood, sweat, and tears. The comfortable people have made members of their own human family into slaves. And the God who is portrayed in this story is completely intolerant of one group of people taking advantage of another and will not stand for it. Is God angry? Yes. God is angry about injustice. And God has given many warnings because God wishes we would get angry about it. Angry enough to do something about it rather than pretending it doesn't exist and directing people to another passage. This is the point. God has been for all of us from the very beginning. But right now, in this situation, God is speaking up for the people who need God because they don't have anyone else. This is a story from Israel's history. It is written by human hands, just like all the rest of the Bible. It is meant to be a wake-up call to privileged people who read it, yes, and it is meant to be a comfort to folks who are missing out on the good times that are going on. Throughout history, people have read these warnings in front of them and have failed to respond. Amos called upon people to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, and they did not listen. Dr. King gave us the same warning 50 years ago, and we still live in a country where the biggest headlines this past week were about racism. The practical application of this passage is for us to look at our own world with our soaring stock market and our ballooning pay for executives and celebrities, to look at the prosperity 
alongside daily stories of human trafficking and mass migrations and widening gaps between rich and poor and story after story of depressed, addicted, unhappy rich people. We are to look at this imbalance and ask, has God been trying to give us a warning? I would suggest that this imbalance is not serving any of us well. And that we cannot go on this way forever. Are we ignoring God's command to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream? This is hard teaching. It is hard teaching if you want a God who will only say nice things. And if you want the Bible to make you look good in an argument with the atheists. But as preacher Will Willimon suggests, one way you can tell the difference between a true and living God and a dead and fake God is that the false God will never tell you anything that will make you angry and uncomfortable. The world needs these warnings. There are many texts in the Bible that focus on God's grace and forgiveness. Many, many, many stories like that. I preach about them on most Sundays. This text is about justice. And for the kind of people God is saving in this passage, the people on the underside of the northern kingdom who were not living the good life, this is a text of grace. When no one in the king's palace is listening to you, hearing that God is going to turn the tables, that's an act of grace. The book of Amos will conclude with a hopeful word. God says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them upon their land, and they shall never again be plucked out of, out of the land that I have given them. Thus says the Lord your God. In order for Israel's fortunes to be restored, first there has to be a reckoning with the injustice in the land. This story from Amos presents an irony we see all the time in the modern world. Life was good in Israel for some people. But too often, our own comfort blinds us to the needs of others and the realities of the world. So instead of being generous when we have more than we need, wealth most often leads to greed. Too much wealth leads to fear of what is going to happen to me when the good days run out. When times are good, and times are good, 
It is our responsibility to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amen? Amen.